This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Save the date for the grand reopening on May 14th and 15th after the most extensive and transformative renovation in its nearly 200-year history. It's your history museum, your story. Details at virginiahistory.org. Hello and welcome to episode four of season six of the How We Got Here podcast. Thank you all for going on this journey with us. We've got an interesting episode from women taking a stand on a food shortage in Richmond to a president known as his accidency and a story I've been dying to tackle on this podcast, the destruction left in the wake of the Confederate evacuation of its capital. This week, we are turning back the clock on March 28th through April 3rd. Riot. It's defined as a violent disturbance of the peace by a crowd. The word's been thrown around a lot in recent years, used to describe uprisings of disenfranchised people, people in great need, or desperate to point out a wrong. It's used to explain the burning of storefronts or the breaking of windows. It's used to describe the tearing down of statues. Riot is also in the eye of the beholder, isn't it? Depending on your point of view, your desperation, one person's riot and upheaval is another person's protest or demonstration. And on April 2nd, 1863, it was women who stood up and said, enough is enough, demanding to be treated fairly for the price of food, an event in history largely called the Richmond Women's Bread Riot. This is an instance in which I think women who are the primary instigators of not just the bread riot in Richmond, but a series of a dozen or more similar riots that took place all across the South. It's a sign of just how desperate the situation was and women feeling the need to, you know, make their voices heard, make demands from their governments to to help, to exercise a certain amount of political power in a day when they were otherwise disenfranchised. And that's the voice of longtime guest, all the way back to our first season, Dr. Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Karen says, as with many stories from long ago, we only have one-sided accounts to piece together what exactly went down. The old adage, history is told by the winners. So often history was told by the people in power who were usually white, male privileged people. The historical record can be full of those kinds of gaps and and indeed it is for the bread riots. In my research on them and to my knowledge we don't have any first-hand accounts of the women who participated outside of transcriptions of their court documents, although even many of those court records were lost during the, the chaos of the Civil War and the burning Richmond. 
And the key to unlocking what happened is to know the Civil War is raging. Farms are being destroyed in battles. Supply shortages are constant and inflation is skyrocketing. Two years into the war, it's the spring of 1863. Over the preceding months, the Confederate Army had, had suffered a series of losses in, in the Western territories. The situation on the home front was also becoming pretty desperate, particularly in Richmond, and there are a few reasons for that. During the war, Richmond's population exploded. You know, people coming to the capital of the Confederacy for opportunities, some coming as refugees from war-torn places and so forth. So Richmond's population within two years doubled. And that put a strain on society. Rent was through the roof. People couldn't find housing. This exacerbated already pretty dire food shortages. The South, by the spring of 63, was really feeling the effects of the war of farmland either being destroyed or being taken over by the federal armies. The Confederate Army was impressing food from farmers to provision the army. That reduced the supply that was available for civilians on the home front. As hard as inflation has hit us all in 2022, it was unimaginable in the Confederate capital. Prices for all kinds of consumer goods and, and foods were exploding as well, on average about 10 times more in 1863 than the same item would have cost two years prior to that. People's wages, particularly working class women who were the primary instigators of this riot, those wages just weren't keeping up with inflation. So they, they could not feed themselves, they could not feed their children, they couldn't feed their families. That kind of desperation led to these kinds of acts of protest. The first of the uprisings were small. It started in Atlanta about three weeks earlier. There were others in Macon, Georgia, in North Carolina, in Mobile, Alabama. Petersburg, Virginia, just the day before Richmond's riot, and then the Richmond riot. Um, so the Richmond riot wasn't the first, but it was the largest and, and most important. It garnered the most attention. Word spread quickly to Richmond about what was happening across the South. The local papers covered it. It suggests a certain amount of just political literacy of the people involved. You know, they were aware of what was happening in the world outside their own community, outside their own town, and, you know, drawing inspiration from that. The fact that so many of these riots happened in quick succession led some Confederate officials and sympathetic journalists to claim that there was a conspiracy, of course, started by the federal government that was causing all of these riots. The earlier riots are clearly an inspiration for what would eventually transpire in Richmond. Generally, these food riots or bread riots, as they came to be known, involved usually women first going to civic officials and asking for help with the, the food shortages. If they did not get that help, then they would go and they would attack local businesses to, you know, to try to demand food. There was some damage. It kind of depends on, on who you ask, I guess. Certainly the, the, sh the 
shop owners, the businessmen who lost their stock and, and filed for damages or had a store window broken or something like that. You know, they certainly weren't happy with it, but I think the protesters, they didn't necessarily get the food that they wanted, but their actions did have a cumulative effect. It all started the evening before, on April 1st, 1863. 300 women gathered to discuss their plans. They met at a church in Oregon Hill, which at the time was a suburb of Richmond, not actually part of the city like it is today. These women planned to lead a demonstration. In many cases, we, we just know their names. Sometimes we know a little bit more about them. Um, one of the main leaders was a woman named Mary Jackson. Several of the newspaper accounts described her as like an old toothless hag or, you know, a harridan type figure. <laughs> um, she was 34 years old. Uh, she was a mother. She was the wife of a farmer, but they were living in Oregon Hill. And she worked as a, as a huckster, as a, you know, as a saleswoman in one of the Richmond markets. She sold beef. She had several children, including one son who was serving in the Confederate Army. Mary Jackson had already unsuccessfully tried to petition the Confederate Army to discharge her son so he could come home and help support the family. So I suspect there was a little frustration involved that motivated her to take a leadership role in this event. We don't know much else about her. We know the names of a few other of the figures, but not, not a lot of details about them. Many of them were working class. There were some middle-class women as well involved. The protest began around 8 a.m., April 2nd. The women started gathering in front of the George Washington statue on Capitol grounds. Uh, women came from not just Richmond, but from many of the surrounding counties. About an hour into the protest, around nine, a few of the leaders of the group went to the executive mansion and knocked on the front door, looking for the governor. There's some question as to whether they talked to him at the governor's mansion or at the Capitol. Eventually, you know, they got hold of the governor, John Letcher, who basically told them there was nothing he could do and essentially read them the riot act, literally read them the riot act. At that point, the women who had just been asking him to give them the government prices for foodstuffs like bread and bacon and other staples. And by government prices, the prices that the Confederate government was buying those foods at, which were not the inflated prices that these women and, and other everyday consumers found in their markets and shops. The governor refused that, so then the women started to march. They filed out of Capitol Square and moved through the roads chanting, walking toward Richmond's business district. They marched south on 9th Street to Main Street and Cary Street. The Shaco Slip was the, the primary business district of the city at that time. As the women were marching, others joined the crowd. Bystanders started to flood into the area to see what was going on. Even men were joining the demonstration. There are mixed reports as to how large the crowds were. 
was probably at least several hundred. Some claim it was more than a thousand. We don't really know how many people participated, and of course it would also be hard to distinguish who was there in protest, who got swept up in it as a bystander, and so forth. And certainly the motivations of people who joined in varied. Some people were doing this out of desperation. Their kids were hungry. They, they wanted to get something to be able to, to feed their families. Some joined it just out of opportunism. They, they saw an opportunity to you know, break into a store and, and loot the store. Others might have been swept up for just more sinister reasons, you know, a desire to participate in, in criminal acts. According to newspaper accounts from the time, the women broke into 12 stores. Purportedly, they first asked the merchant to give them the government prices, just like they asked the governor. And when the shop owner refused, then they would, they would take over. They took all sorts of goods. They took foodstuffs they found. They had also broken into a few dry goods stores, so they took things like hats and, f and shoes and so forth. And in a few instances, they also took more, more luxury items. They kind of grabbed what they could. Several of the women and other participants commandeered wagons to drive away with their loot, you know, with a wagon loaded with hundreds of pounds of bacon or, or whatever it is they got from that particular shop. The entire incident was over in about two hours once the police showed up. There are competing reports, so it's really hard to know exactly who as an official first showed up, when they showed up, where they showed up, but the mayor of Richmond, Joseph Mayo, the governor, Letcher, and also Jefferson Davis, who was the president of the Confederacy. At varying points, they all came down to the area and they addressed the crowds. One woman from this time that we do hear from is Jefferson Davis's wife, Verena. She did claim that it was her husband who went out to talk to the protesters. He purportedly gave a very eloquent speech trying to reason with them, trying to suggest that everyone had to make sacrifices during the time of war. And the hands were, his hands were really tied. He couldn't do anything. He purportedly, you know, emptied out his pocket, said, I don't have much money, but here, take all I have. And then he gave them five minutes to disperse before the public guard would start shooting at them. Other accounts say it was the governor of Virginia, Letcher, who actually called in the public guard, which at the time think state police riot control. It's believed that he threatened to have the guards turn their guns on the protesters if they didn't disperse. Other accounts claim that Jefferson Davis did that. In any event, there was some kind of threat of violence against the protesters. The crowds pretty quickly dispersed. And after that point, the police started making arrests. No one died that day. A few were injured. But most of the violence was directed at physical property. All told, a little over 60 people were arrested. 44 of whom were women and another dozen or so were men. And they were tried. At the end of the day, 12 women were convicted and six men were convicted. Mary Jackson, one of the organizers we told you about, she was charged with a misdemeanor. 
the prosecution couldn't find concrete evidence that she actually stole goods from some of the raided stores, so she just got off, so to speak, with a misdemeanor. We don't know what happened to everyone who was arrested that day, because as we told you, so many of the court records were lost to time and various fires. In some cases because the protesters were using aliases so you know it's a little difficult to determine exactly what happened to each of these defendants usually the women got either a fine and or some jail time usually not more than either a few days or 30 days or something like that the south immediately tried to keep the bread riot quiet Confederate government definitely wanted to put a lid on this news. They didn't want the news getting out because they were afraid that it would harm Confederate morale. They were also afraid that it would be used by Union sympathizers to criticize the South. At the direction of the Confederate Secretary of War, a Confederate official, he delivered a dispatch to the editors of Richmond newspapers, and the dispatch reads, The unfortunate disturbance which occurred today in the city is so liable to misconstruction and misrepresentation abroad that I am desired by the Secretary of War to make a special appeal to the editors and reporters of the press at Richmond and earnestly request them to avoid all reference directly or indirectly to the affair. That was not successful. It lasted about a day. You instantly see the divide on how this event was talked about in the different papers, whether they were based in the South or the North. It got out to northern newspapers in part because a day or so after the bread riot, there was a prisoner exchange and a bunch of Union prisoners which were being held in Libby prison right around that region. They actually witnessed the riot you know, from the windows of the prison. After the prison exchange, when they went back, north and went back home, they told the story of, of the bread riot. Once it did get out, Southern papers couldn't ignore it anymore, and the spin began. They painted the picture of this was a riot of immoral women, of people who were not really starving, that they were leading these protests out of criminal intent. They also blamed outsiders, Yankees and others. And, and one of the most colorful quotes along these lines came from Richmond's Daily Examiner newspaper. And this was on April 4th, so two days after the event. He described the mob as a handful of prostitutes, professional thieves, Irish and Yankee hags, gallows birds, that is jailbirds, from all lands but our own. <laughs> so um, he's, he's, you know, clearly uh, placing the blame on undesirable types. He also argued that the protesters were not really starving because they didn't take bread. They, they took things like shoes and other things as a regular whipping post of um, Southern newspapers like the Daily Examiner, he blamed the federal government and their emissaries. 
The Northern papers exaggerated the number of protesters. The New York Times, their first article on this event read, 3,000 hungry women raging in the streets. They really exploded the number of, what was the probable number of participants. Northern commentators generally saw this as evidence of the failings of the, the Confederacy. In the end, the protests did scare local government into action, but it far from fixed the problem. It had a pretty immediate effect in Richmond in that the Richmond City Council held some emergency meetings to discuss the incident and they appropriated more money to help. Not only did the Richmond City Council appropriate more money for social welfare, for provisioning the city with food and fuel and, and other things the citizens so desperately needed, but the City Council also increased the police force, the number of police. By the next morning, cannons had been placed in strategic locations along these streets to deter any additional protests. The city cracked down pretty quickly, and so there weren't any other riots of this scale in Richmond. April 2nd, 1863. Women left alone at home to care for the families of the Minute War rose up to demand an end to inflation on food prices. The Richmond Women's Bread Riot wasn't the first, but it was the largest and most consequential. Putting women in front of the most prominent leaders of the day, their voices and actions just raucous enough to try and cook up change. This podcast is sponsored by the Library of Virginia, where digital resources reach nearly 4 million people yearly and collections of more than 130 million items tell the stories of Virginians. Find Virginia history at lva.virginia.gov. A man who fought to stay relevant most of his life, even while sitting in the Oval Office, is losing his relevancy in the 2020s. His name will soon be stripped from a community college. It was dropped as the name of a building on the campus of the College of William and Mary. We can't separate the slaveholder from the, the person who may have done great things in other contexts, but was a slaveholder. He owned people, right? I think sometimes we, we use terms like slaveholder and master and those things, but we always need to come back. You know, they owned people. John Tyler is known by many names. You may remember learning the slogan, Tippy Canoe and Tyler Too. It was actually a song, but most people forget that. He was the 10th president of the United States, also dubbed his accidency because of how he ascended to the office. More recently, though, the words slaveholder and joined the Confederacy sit uncomfortably close to the mentions of his name. 1850, he owned, and I say at least, 46 enslaved persons ranging in age from 5 to 80. 
a decade later, right before the Civil War, he owned at least 43 enslaved persons, ranging in age from a six-month-old infant to 67 years old. We know this because of research into the slave census by historians like John Deal. My name is John Deal, and I am an editor and historian at the Library of Virginia. Not long ago, our first-time guest ended up researching and writing all about Tyler. He's been with the Library of Virginia for two decades. I always ask this question of every guest. Are you a Virginian? I am. I'm actually a Richmonder as well. I grew up in uh, the suburbs out in the west end of Henrico County. Deal's going to help us better understand the change in attitude over Tyler who was born this week in history on March 29th, 1790, on a plantation. He's born into privilege and money. His father was a governor as well as a, as a district judge. He was born on a plantation named Greenway in Charles City County. So I think he certainly had what we would think of as certainly a a typical upbringing for that certain class of of people, private schooling and those kinds of things. So his mother died when he was seven years old. He started his collegiate studies at the College of William & Mary when he was only 14 years old. He completed his studies there in 1807 and then read law with his father. And his father certainly owned slaves as well. There was never a time when that wasn't a a part of his life. Tyler quickly joins the family business. He's elected to the Virginia House of Delegates at the age of 21. Politics is in his blood, certainly because of his father. When you're in an area, a county like that, and you're sort of the the big man on campus, for lack of a better word, then you're going to follow in those footsteps. If your family is, uh, is a known entity, then when you're younger, you'll be elected to the House of Delegates when you're in your 20s. So that's not uh, too surprising. And of course, remember, literacy rates were not very high for uh, the regular person. So it was the wealthy that could uh, afford private schools or tutors and, and that kind of thing. Tyler was elected to every office you could think of. He might have been the most qualified person to become president because he held so many offices. The Virginia House of Delegates, the Senate of Virginia. The Council of State, which was an advisory board to the, the governor. Of course, Governor of Virginia, a member of the House of Representatives, and the United States Senate. Even though he may have been qualified, his ascension to the presidency was anything but easy or scandal-free. He was instantly dubbed his accidency when he took the oath of office in 1841. He's the first vice president ever to become president after the death of his predecessor. President William Henry Harrison died 31 days after assuming office. It's actually an important note in history because up until that time, that was the first time it had happened. And so there was some sort of backing and forthing about whether he was sort of a temporary president whether he was just kind of going to sit there until they did a new election. And so after lots of backing and forthing with Congress, it was established that he was, in fact, the president. 
and would finish out what was essentially the four-year term since Harrison died a month after his inauguration. At the time, it only created the custom that the vice president would assume the role. It wasn't written into law. That didn't happen until more than a century later, when the 25th Amendment was ratified in 1967. Which specifically dealt with presidential succession and disability, you know, if the president's incapacitated for, for some reason. Quick sidebar here. You probably learned in school that President Harrison got pneumonia after a super long speech in harsh weather without a hat, gloves, or coat. But that's probably not correct. Recent scholars have suggested that it might have been bacteria in the drinking water of D.C. that may have sort of exacerbated any issues that Harrison had. But sort of Tyler was almost doomed from the start. His accidency was a staunch states rights Democrat at the time. He was a slaveholder, uh, of course, and did not believe in sort of a large federal government in a large presidency. And so during the 1830s, when he was in Congress, he began to sort of push back and rebel against Andrew Jackson, who, though a Southerner, wanted to sort of make the presidency more powerful with, you know, closing down the Bank of the United States and putting the reserves into what we call uh, state pet banks. And Tyler and others thought that that would give more power to Jackson. When South Carolina threatened to nullify uh, a tariff in 1832, Jackson got permission from the Congress to use force, if necessary, to sort of bring South Carolina into the fold. And so Jackson sort of left the Jacksonian uh, Democrats and migrated to the Whigs, who were largely obviously against Jackson, but who were also very much into what we call the American system. They liked internal improvements and active government and the Bank of the United States. And so he migrated there pretty much to have a party to, to, to hold on to. When Tyler got on the presidential ticket as the VP, he was sort of a compromise nominee of the Whig Party. He was nominated, as we do, to draw sort of states' rights Southerners who did not support that Jacksonian democracy. And he never really embraced the Whig ideology, but he certainly didn't mind becoming president. The problem then happened after Harrison passes away, Tyler moves up, he still is a states' rights person with an all-Whig Congress and an all-Whig cabinet. So his administration is pretty much chaos the entire time. He's nearly a four-year lame duck. His entire cabinet, except for Daniel Webster, who is the Secretary of State, resigns. And they were hoping that he would sort, Tyler would sort of take the hint and resign himself. Well, he was kind of going to stand his ground, as it were, and, and he didn't resign. Not a lot got done during his administration, but Daniel Webster, staying on the cabinet, did help direct Tyler's foreign policy. In August 1842, Webster concluded the Webster-Ashburton Treaty with Great Britain that sort of settled boundary disputes between the United States and British colonies along 
the Maine and Great Lakes border. And also in April 1844, the administration negotiated sort of a treaty of annexation with Texas. But because of Tyler's poor relations with the parties, the Senate rejected the treaty. The Congress did eventually sign a joint resolution to annex Texas, which Tyler signed in the final days of his presidency. Tyler is also known for another first, the first president to marry while in office. His first wife died of a stroke in 1842 after he became the commander-in-chief. In 1844, Tyler, after a secret engagement, 54-year-old Tyler married 23-year-old Julia Gardner in New York City. We told you all about Julia in a previous season of How We Got Here. The age difference raised eyebrows, but the quick engagement and marriage after his wife died was more of a norm at the time. Male widows were known to remarry fairly quickly after the death of their spouse. There's no good way to put this that doesn't sound bad. They needed somebody to take care of their kids. Most widowers were not widowers for very long. All of this while President Tyler continued to enslave human beings. He kind of thought that it was sort of a necessary evil and it needed to expand into the Western territories to disperse the slave population which he thought would sort of ease problems of management and allow for better treatments. That was a common belief at the time, that slavery needed to expand West, that it would help enslaved people somehow. But of course, it's really just helping expand the concept of slavery, meaning you would have more representatives in the Congress that come from slaveholding states. As with everything related to slavery, you can't separate the two, right? You can't separate his ideology and beliefs with the institution of slavery. When I talk to the different groups, I always want to let them know slavery was not an economic system. It was the very fabric of Southern society. Everything, everything was enmeshed. You, you can't disentangle slavery from the uh, pre-Civil War South and even post-Civil War as we have the effects uh, of slavery. For Tyler, he would sort of try to go both ways. Tyler is pretty quiet for the next 20 years until the secession crisis hits and states are deciding whether to leave the Union. That's when Tyler's suddenly popular again. Remember, he was all for states' rights. He loves to give his opinion, right? He wants to be relevant again. With the election of Abraham Lincoln and the secession of lower South states, he warns Lincoln, you know, to be careful about what he does in dealing with those lower South states uh, that had uh, seceded. He started writing columns in the newspapers where he talked about slavery and its importance to the South. It's important for us to look at that history again. Most of what we learned we were in grade school or elementary or high school, or whatever, if you were certainly from the South, was that more benign slavery. Like my history books, we would stop at the Civil War, skip Reconstruction altogether, and then kind of pick back up in the 20th century, right? They didn't even want to deal with 
that reconstruction era, right? They just wanted to go right to the lost cause around the turn of the 20th century. Tyler was at the Virginia Secession Convention. He voted twice for Virginia to secede from the Union. He was quickly elected to Provisional Confederate Congress and then subsequently won election to the Confederate House of Representatives that was scheduled to meet for the first time in February of 1862. On January 18, 1862, Tyler died in his room at the Ballard House Hotel in Richmond at the age of 71. He was buried in Hollywood Cemetery under the Confederate flag. Although long gone, having passed in 1862, we're ending this segment in a rabbit hole. One my producer, Colton Weekly, got lost in while researching this story. One of Tyler's sons with Julia was Lion Gardner Tyler, who was historian and president of the College of Women Mary. He was born in 1853, so he was only about eight years old when his father died. Lion Gardner Tyler's first wife died in 1921. And in 1923, when he was 70 years old, he marries a Susan Huff Harrison Ruffner, who was about 34, making her about 35 years his junior. So among their children was Lion Gardner Tyler Jr., who was an attorney and history professor. And he was born in 1925, and he just died in 2020 at 95 years of age. There is another grandson still alive today. You heard me right. A grandson of the 10th president of the United States is still alive. His name is Harrison Ruffner Tyler. He was born in 1928. And as of a half hour ago, when I poked around the web, he was still alive and he's 93 years old and he's a chemical engineer. It is pretty amazing to have a living grandson of the 10th president of the United States and somebody who was born in 1790. But it just so happened that Tyler and then his son ended up having very young second wives who gave birth when they were older. March 29, 1790. Famous Virginian John Tyler is born, a slaveholder whose legacy is changing by the day, his accidency setting what's known as the Tyler precedent, a tradition that allows vice presidents to assume the power of the presidency, a man who held every office imaginable, including President of the United States and rebel delegate of the Confederacy. took Richmond at 8.15 this morning. I captured many guns. The enemy left in great haste. The city is on fire in two places. The famous words telegraphed by Union Commander General Godfrey Weitzel to Washington, D.C. on April 3rd, 
1865. Richmond, the Confederate capital for four years, had fallen. Think about it. In 48 hours, the Confederate army retreats, the Southern government evacuates its capital, the city burns, slavery ends, the Union Army marches in. The fire and the fall of Richmond overshadowed everything that had come before in Richmond's history and influenced everything that followed for a long, long time. And some people would say even to the present day. We are thrilled to bring you our first time guest this week retired historian and author, Nelson Lankford. And I worked at what was called the Virginia Historical Society for 30 years. I edited the Quarterly Journal and supervised all their educational programs. It's now called the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, a place our longtime listeners know well. I wrote books on my own time, and one of them was called Richmond Burning, The Last Days of the Confederate Capital because I wanted to write about a dramatic event that took place in a small area, Richmond, in a short period of time. <laughs> Last year, I started work on a, on a sequel to Richmond Burning to answer the question, what happened next? But we're going to talk about Richmond Burning today. Which is why we're starting this segment on April 2nd, 1865 the day Confederate President Jefferson Davis ordered the evacuation of the city. For years, Union armies had smashed themselves against the edges of Richmond's defenses. It was usual to hear cannons and gunfire in the distance. But on this day, a particular cloud of gloom hung over the River City. Petersburg was falling and General Robert E. Lee was likely no longer able to act as Richmond's great protector. For people here, they couldn't imagine a more dramatic day until April the 3rd came, and that was even more dramatic. But on April the 2nd, it was a Sunday, There's the famous story that the Confederate President Jefferson Davis was sitting in his accustomed pew at St. Paul's Episcopal Church right there across from Capitol Square. And he got word from Robert E. Lee that the Confederate Army would have to retreat from Petersburg. Lee telegraphed Davis. I advise that all preparation be made for leaving Richmond tonight. After reading the telegram, Davis stood up and walked out of the church with the service still underway. He said nothing and gave no indication of the message's contents. Not long after leaving the church, he issued the first orders for the Confederate government's evacuation. But he did not tell the citizens just yet, even as government officials began burning any potentially sensitive documents in the streets. Although there were no formal announcements to citizens until the afternoon, the news did spread by word of mouth. And then it quickly spread across town that the government was going to evacuate. So that afternoon was 
just for Confederates, it was a fearful time wondering when the army would leave, when the Union army would come in. Some people evacuated from the city. Some people decided to stay. But by the time night came, the Confederate army northeast of town was beginning to evacuate across Mayo's Bridge. At the time, there were only three bridges that crossed the James River. There were two railroad bridges and one for pedestrians, horses, and wagons. So that was Mayo's toll bridge. And that small Confederate army east of town, over the course of the night, went south across Mayo's bridge to try to link up with Robert E. Lee's larger Confederate army. Jefferson Davis delayed his own departure, hoping that somehow Lee would send news to stand down so the government would not have to abandon the Confederates' crown jewel. Finally, at around 11 p.m., nearly three hours late, he boarded a train to Danville and left Richmond to fall. When the president's train left, shortly after that, civil order began to break down. People knew that the army was evacuating. A lot of looters gathered to ransack stores down in what's now Shaco Bottom. So the looting began during the course of the night. And the Confederates were mainly trying to get their soldiers and cannons across the river to go link up with Robert E. Lee. And they weren't interested in trying to preserve the civil order. But as law and order broke down, more and more people came out and went down to the business district to loot the stores. Chaos crushed the city. And knowing how badly the Confederate city of Columbia, South Carolina fared when it fell and soldiers discovered its stores of whiskey, Richmond officials ordered all liquor be destroyed. A lot of times soldiers get hold of liquor and when they have a lot to drink, that emboldens them to do more damage. Traditional phrase is rape, pillage, and burn. Those are the three things that usually happen when a city changes hands in a war. People were so fearful, the city government tried to dump the liquor supplies into the gutters. But they didn't get started soon enough and they didn't do it enough to really get rid of all the liquor. There are so many stories written about this incident that I believe it's true that literally men, women, and even children got down on their hands and knees to scoop up alcohol from the gutters. They weren't just throwing single bottles to break them. They were using axes to knock in barrels full of whiskey. A lot of people did get drunk and that just made the, the looting even more. There's even a story from that night April 2nd, 1865, about a slave broker, Robert Lumpkin. He ran the notorious prison and auctions in the streets for enslaved men and women in Richmond's Shaco Bottom. He tried to escape with his so-called property. There was one last group of slaves in Lumpkin's slave jail. He tried to take them on one of the last trains, but they didn't allow them to go the trains were too full with government and civilian evacuees, so Lumpkin marched 50 shackled men and women and children back through the streets 
to his prison to spend the night. So they stayed in Richmond. And the story is that those slaves were the first ones to sing the song, Slavery Chained Unbroke at Last. It's a song that is traced back to that day. The chorus? Slavery chained on broke at last, broke at last, broke at last. Slavery chain done broke at last, going to praise God till I die. The song ends with the lines, There's no more weary traveling, cause my Jesus set me free. There's no more auction block, since he gave me liberty. It's also around this time, as day starts to break, the morning of April 3rd, the Confederate commanders ordered their soldiers to set fire to bridges, tobacco warehouses, and weapons caches as the last soldiers crossed the bridge. It's starting to get a little light now. The Confederate government, a few months before, had passed a law to say that if our army ever has to leave a city, they should not leave anything of military value. So there's a big debate among the Confederate officers in charge in Richmond whether they should burn anything or not, because the fear was that, of course, the fire would spread. Well, the officers who favored burning carried the day. The soldiers used what they could to light select tobacco warehouses. The wind was still. The smoke just rose straight up in the air. But they had bad luck because as soon as the fires began, a strong wind began to blow from the south. So it began to blow flames from those tobacco warehouses onto neighboring buildings. And that's how the fire spread. As the last Confederate soldiers crossed Mayo's Bridge, Army engineers, they'd already piled up barrels of turpentine on the bridge and they set that afire. In later years, there was a contest. Different Confederate soldiers claimed to be the last person to cross before the bridge caught fire. So there's a little competition there. The Confederate soldiers reached the south bank of the James River at the same time the first Northern soldiers ride into Richmond on horseback. There were a few shots fired, but the Northern soldiers weren't that interested in chasing the Confederates. They wanted to go capture Capitol Square and the Capitol. The fires by now are raging through the business district. Everything from Capitol Square south to the river burned. There's only one building that did not burn, and that was the Customs House, which is what later became the post office and now the U.S. court building down there at the base of Capitol Square. That survived. So everything from there to the river burned and maybe some blocks east of 14th Street and some blocks west of 9th Street. The flames destroyed Richmond's banks, two hotels, three newspapers, the Inquirer, the Dispatch, and the Examiner, a flour mill, a paper mill, railroad depots, and of course the bridges over the James River. One thing you should keep in mind is that only one-tenth of the built-up area of the city burned. People think, oh, the whole city burned. 
And you have in the next few days, a lot of northern photographers came in and they took hundreds of pictures, these large glass plate negatives. They took pictures of the ruins because the north wanted to see the wages of sin in their definition. The sin of secession. And this is this is what the South reaped by seceding. Their cities were destroyed. And because of these poorly timed winds, the whole city threatened to burn that morning. There are only maybe a couple dozen people at the most died. There are a few cases of during the looting the night before, people were shot. There were a few people who were burned by fire. There was the Confederate powder magazine where they stored gunpowder. That exploded and killed about a dozen people from the poorhouse. One observer, George A. Bruce, writing, the wind was blowing like a hurricane, hurling cinders and pieces of burning wood with long trails of flame over the houses to distant quarters of the city. The heated air, dim with smoke, and filled with the innumerable particles that float from the surface of so great a fire rendered it almost impossible to breathe. When the fire was raging at its height, around dawn, a lot of the business people who lived over their shops tried to drag a few possessions to safety to Capitol Square because the screen space that wasn't burning. So the Capitol Square was littered with the possessions of of people who lived nearby trying to escape the fire. And they literally had to brush embers off their coats to keep from catching on fire themselves because there was ashes and fiery embers falling everywhere. The roofs of buildings were wooden shake roofs and a lot of these caught on fire and because the wind, they were blown across the city. And there's one uh, Union soldier who talked about the firebrands thumping and rattling against Thomas Crawford's equestrian statue of George Washington on the upper half of Capitol Square. And that statue, by the way, had become a focal point in Richmond. Even before the Civil War, it was a point of pride, a sample of Virginia's success, the great George Washington. After the fire, it became a locus for political gatherings, especially of African-Americans, because before the war, African-Americans were not allowed onto Capitol Square unless they were in the company of their master. After the war, they flocked there for mass meetings because now they could congregate there. So that statute, it comes in and out of the political story of what was happening from before. It's almost around seven or eight in the morning on April 3rd, when those first Union soldiers step foot into the burning city. They were commanded by 29-year-old Major General Godfrey Weitzel. They were jubilant because they had expected to have to fight. But what happened was the small Confederate army facing them evacuated its trenches and evacuated the city. So there was no battle. And so Weitzel and his men were jubilant because they didn't have to fight. They came in, the fire is raging at its strongest now. And Weitzel first accepts the surrender of the city. Mayor Joseph Mayo went out to the east and, and offered to surrender the city and invited the Union Army to come in and help fight the fire and restore public order. 
Weitzel went first to the governor's mansion and wrote that now famous telegram. We took Richmond at 8.15 this morning. I captured many guns. The enemy left in great haste. The city is on fire in two places. And making every effort to put it out. The people received us with enthusiastic expression of joy. The telegraph reached from Washington down the eastern shore, under the Chesapeake Bay at Fort Monroe, and then up to Grant's headquarters at City Point, which is now called Hopewell. He wrote that out and gave it to a dispatch rider and told him to ride hell for leather back to their camp of the night before where there was a field telegraph. That message, we took Richmond at 8.15 a.m., flashed down the telegraph wires and was in Washington just a few minutes later. So in Washington and then in Philadelphia and New York, they, they got the news that Richmond had fallen, was occupied by the Union Army and, was, and the city was burning. People got that news right away. So there were mass celebrations in the big cities of the North. At the same time, Richmond was literally burning. We think about our technology being so advanced now, but the telegraph allowed news to move at the speed of electricity almost. Weitzel and his staff then went to the south portico of the Capitol and looked down upon the flames. One of his officers said it was like a gigantic crater of fire. And so the Union Army began to fight the fire and try to get civilians, residents of Richmond to help them but they couldn't do a whole lot for a while because of the strong wind. It wasn't until mid-afternoon that the wind died down and the fire had eaten its way through the heart of the business district that they began to get it under control. While many in the pro-Confederate capital were distraught that not only the city was burning, but the Union soldiers were now the occupiers, there was a large section of the city's population who was celebrating. But remember, the African-American population of Richmond, they were jubilant, and they greeted the soldiers coming in. One story that I really like is the story of Garland White. And you know, this is a how-we-got-here rabbit hole worth exploring. He was a Black man who had been born in Richmond 35 years before, as a child, he was sold away from his family to a Southern politician in Georgia. He escaped, went to Canada, became a minister, and then he joined one of the USCTs. These are the United States Colored Troops, USCTs. These are regiments of Black men recruited to fight in the Union Army, and they were recruited from every state, including Southern states. So Garland White was a chaplain with one of these USCT regiments. They march in the morning of the fire. You can't imagine how proud he was to come home, liberating his hometown. And when his unit marched into the western side of town, and they stacked their arms, and they were surrounded by freed people who were greeting them, and his soldiers, his comrades, spontaneously asked him to give a speech. He was a preacher, right? He, he was, had the gift of the gab. So he began to speak about telling all the freed people that they were free at last. But he choked up because he just couldn't. He choked up because of this amazing scene 
surrounding him. The city's burning and they're there to tell people that they're free. Some of his comrades brought him an old woman who quizzed him and she said, this is your mother, Garland, who has been looking for you for 30 years. Remember, he had been sold as a child, so he didn't remember what she looked like and she quizzed him. And, and I thought, this is amazing. You cannot make this story up. What a wonderful reunion. And I thought, could this just be some exaggeration? Well, no. The story comes from a letter that White wrote a religious newspaper in Philadelphia a week later, a letter to the editor, and he tells his own story in, in, in these words. That's one of the most dramatic scenes of that day. That story gave me goosebumps as Nelson was telling it. It just takes your breath away. Another emotional sight that day, the raising of the Stars and Stripes over Richmond once again. We do know that the first U.S. flag was raised not by a Union soldier, but by a young man of a mixed race origins in Richmond, Richard Forrester. His grandfather was Gustavus Myers, who had been a pillar of the Virginia Historical Society, and he was a prominent lawyer. But this grandson had been a page in the legislature before the war. He saved the U.S. flag that flew over the Capitol before the war and went up there that morning and raised it again. And as you can imagine, some people in Richmond were delighted to see the U.S. flag. Others were unable to accept it. One of the Richmond newspapers, the Richmond Dispatch, which is very pro-Confederate, in the last issue that was written the day before, it said, the future unity of America is a dream of maniacs. I mean, they just could not, even at the moment of defeat, could not accept that they would be reunited with the northern states. A lot of diaries were written at this time and letters written from Richmond, and you can, you can see in those letters how bitter they were at the outcome. The diary of Fanny Young, a pro-Confederate Southerner, survives to this day. She wrote, If I dare to look into the future of all this, I almost go mad with horror and fear. She couldn't accept it. Another woman, Alice Payne, wrote in her diary, Poor Virginia, gone, gone forever. And a third woman, Fanny Taylor Dickinson, was a young wife of a minister. She wrote this in her diary, quote, Last night on ringing the bell for Millie, she was nowhere to be found. Well, Millie had been a slave in her household. And so that one sentence shows the dramatic change that took place when slavery ended. The newly freed African-Americans called a meeting a few days after the fall of Richmond at First African Baptist Church on Broad Street. This was the largest church in the city and it had something like 3,000 black members and they had a jubilee meeting to praise God for their deliverance. Soon after parts of the city burned, interestingly enough, many pro-Confederate Richmonders blamed Jefferson Davis for the fire. They bitterly blamed him for causing the fire, and they were grateful to the Union Army for helping fight the fire. But they still prayed that Lee would return with the flaming sword and throw the Northern soldiers out. It didn't happen. 
When the Northern Army took control of Richmond, it had several major and immediate goals to stop the fire, feed the hungry population, and secure the city. Weitzel didn't know whether the Confederates might counterattack. The thing is, for a week, they didn't know the outcome. Grant and Lee, their bigger armies, had faded away to the Southwest. Nobody knew what was happening. And this is my favorite period because nobody knew. From April the 3rd, the day of the fire and the occupation, April the 9th, Appomattox. Nobody knew the outcome. Appomattox was just a name on a map. Only had significance the following Sunday, six days later. April 2nd, 1865. Confederate President Jefferson Davis rises from his church pew in Richmond for the last time and quietly exits. The beginnings of a chaotic evacuation of the rebel stronghold, the Confederacy's final flaming day in Richmond. Soldiers and government gone, but a lost cause scorched in the minds of many for generations. This podcast is recorded by WWBT, NBC 12, in Richmond, Virginia. This episode was written and edited by me, Rachel DePompa, with many thanks, of course, to digital director Kate Albright and executive producer Colton Weekly. And a special thank you to our assignment desk manager and local filmmaker, Todd Densmore, for the lovely voice acting. It was beautiful. Thank you, Todd. I also want to thank our guests this week, John Deal with the Library of Virginia, Karen Sherry with the Virginia Museum of History and Culture, and author of Richmond Burning, Nelson Lankford. Next week on Episode 5. The Rise and Fall of an African-American Icon. It's the age-old tale. <laughs> the younger folks come in and shake the table a little harder in a little different way. The older established folks are, are not necessarily willing to shift. Plus, they find General Lee down by the Appomattox River resting under an apple tree. The day the Army of Northern Virginia surrenders. This surrender is going to bring the fighting to in Virginia at least to an end. And be a step towards reuniting the country. And he's always saved by some beautiful woman from some terrible fate. <laughs> the mystery of Pocahontas. What would she think of this? <laughs> would she recognize herself in what we're saying? And I just, I don't know. That's next week on episode five. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like these from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, and you use Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. It really does help others find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. Look us up on Instagram, howwegothereva. We'll be back in your life next Monday. <laughs>